You've tried and failed dozens of times. A lifetime of struggle has told you that losing weight is something that will never work and never stick long-term. But our guest this week says that your trail of failure is actually leading you to success and that there's more than just the voice in your head conspiring against you to keep you overweight. Our guest is Glenn Livingston. He's a psychologist and author of the book, Never Binge Again. He'll share how you can become an alpha wolf that can defeat what he calls your inner pig. This is The Fit Mess, conversations with world-class experts in the fields of mental, physical, and emotional health. In this episode... I think we have it back words to say that you have to solve the emotional problems first and you have to love your inner wounded child. You got to take control, man. This will go on forever if you're trying to work it out in therapy. Work it, work out all this stuff in therapy anyway, but this is going to go on forever. Now here are your hosts, Zach and Jeremy. Welcome to The Fit Mess, brought to you by Athletic Greens. Thanks for listening while you're doing whatever it is that you're doing right now. I'm Zach. He's Jeremy. We've been through all kinds of struggles and ended up stronger because of them. And we want to help you do the same. So if you're sick of your own shit and you're ready to make a change, you are in the right place. This week, we're talking not only about weight management, but specifically about binge eating and the role it can play in derailing your fitness goals. Zach, I know you struggle with this as much as I do. Why would you think that? <laughs> well, some something about, uh, I remember conversations about potato chips at 10 oh, o'clock right, in the right. morning. Oh, right, right. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's stre- fair. Stressful weeks leading to piles of pizza, things like that. You're absolutely right. I stress eat. I totally stress eat. Like if I'm having a bad week, if I'm, if I am stressed out about anything, it's food in the mouth and that's my comfort. It's always has been, I, I feel like it always will be, but to a lesser extent. Is it just stress? Cause I know like for me, it's a, it's a schedule thing. If I get out of routine, it's way harder to get back on. Weekends are totally my downfall. Like Friday nights are typically movie night, which means candy, popcorn, the whole thing. If you're going to do movies, you got to go in with the snacks, right? And then that turns into, well, I ate like crap last night and we've got some pastries or, you know, some sort of pancake or something for breakfast in the morning on Saturday. Then you got to go run errands. And so you swing by the fast food place because you didn't pack a lunch ahead of time. And then at that point, the weekend's shot. So screw it. I'm starting over on Monday. And then you sort of wedge your way back in on Monday, but then you kind of fail in the afternoon. It's just like this cycle happens for me every week. And it starts with that Friday when I let myself off. I mean, I say it all the time. I eat, I use the 80, 20 rule when I eat. If I'm eating good 80% of the time, I'm okay eating like shit 20% of the time. That's not sustainable for everyone though. And I do fall into it myself, but like, you know, on Friday, I start eating like crap the next day. I feel like crap and your body naturally gravitates to eating more shitty food to give you that instant feeling better. Mm -hmm. So just recognizing the fact that like those cravings come because you ate shitty food the day before and you'll continue on that train for as long as you can. And just recognizing that you can, you can pull yourself off of it better, but when you don't recognize that the train will keep going and you'll continue to spiral. And the 80-20 rule is fine if you're tracking it. But if you're just kind of in your head like, oh, well, I've, I've done pretty well for a couple of days and I went to the gym a couple of times. I can do, I can have this pizza. I can do whatever. But if you're not keeping track of it, 80-20 is just this thing that you tell yourself that you're doing and and hope that it's going to work. But not you have to track it for that to work. I mean, you have to track it to a certain extent. But like if I eat fine yeah. Monday through Friday and I have two of my meals over the weekend be like off, off the rails. That's 20%. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's as, that's as much as you have to track it. 
Right. But that's, but that's disciplined. You know, I'm giving myself two meals, but if you just kind of go into the weekend with, well, it's the weekend, take the gloves <laughs> off, then, then you're host. Cause you're just going to just keep shoveling food in your face until yeah. you, know, you go to bed every but night. To bring it all full circle though, like we're recording this on a Friday. I've had a pretty shit week all around, like just very stressful, like nothing. I'm happy the weekend is here. I'm happy the week is over but it has been a lot. And all I want to do is order a pizza. So I'll tell you the pizza that I'm going to eat tonight is not going to have the nutritional needs that my body requires. I've been hitting the gym a fair bit this week. So my body actually needs to be refueled and pizza ain't going to do it. That's why I take my athletic greens every morning. I started taking athletic greens because I really needed to have a supplement that tasted great, gave me all the things that I needed. And I didn't want to have to take 10 pills a day or spend all of my time cooking all the meals. I try and get my nutrients from food, but let's face it, we don't get everything we need every day from food. So Athletic Greens was a great solution for me. It tastes great, gives me everything I need for more energy, better gut health, optimized immune system. It has less than a gram of sugar there's no nasty chemicals or artificial anything, and it actually does taste good. And for what you get, it's less than $3 a day. And right now is the time to incorporate better health. And Athletic Greens is a perfect start. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash fitmess. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash fitmess to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. That link will be on the show notes and it's plastered all over our website at thefitmess.com. Well, Zach, you've obviously already given into what our guest refers to as your inner pig. We talked to Glenn Livingston. He's a psychologist and author of the book, Never Binge Again. We asked him about the work he does to help people manage their weight and why this is so personal and important to him. Well, if you were ever in Woodbury, New York, and you stopped at the Woodbury Country Deli and you were unable to get pizza or chocolate because they were all out, the odds are that I was there just before you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not just a doctor that works with weight loss or overeating problems. I'm a guy who had a very serious problem myself. I used to be probably my top was between 280 and 300. I stopped weighing myself at 257. I, I float in the low 200s these days. I started when I was about 17. And I discovered that if I worked out a lot, because I'm 6'4", and I'm modestly muscular, I could eat whatever I wanted to. I mean, you know, boxes of muffins, boxes of donuts, six Pop-Tarts, whole pizza, sometimes more. Whatever wasn't nailed down, I could do it. I did not think it was a problem. Um, Like Doug Graham says, I think it was a superpower. And I spent a lot of time eating and going to the bathroom and sleeping and exercising. And I thought that was cool. I was pretty thin and handsome and was able to date girls and life as a teenager was pretty good. But when I was 22, 23 years old, I got married and I was getting a little older and my metabolism was slowing down. And I found that the food had a life of its own. I didn't have time to do the workouts anymore because I was committing two hours away to graduate school and to see patients. And um, I would come home and I'd be doing the bookkeeping for the business. And I, and God forbid, my wife wanted to talk to me at the time. And 
I couldn't stop thinking about food anyway. So I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient and thinking, when can I get to the deli and dislodge my jaw? I, I'd be working with a couple right after they discovered an affair and like very high, very high risk situations. And I couldn't be 100% present. And, and it was really important to me because I'm from a family of psychologists. There are actually 17 therapists in the family. And, wow. and um, you know, the joke is that we all, if something breaks, we all know how to ask it how it feels. <laughs> nobody knows how to fix it. Um, <laughs> which is funny, but it's also not because there's some practicalities <laughs> yeah. about life that I, <clears throat> I never came to. But being a psychologist was the most important thing to me. And so the fact that I wasn't present, and it's, it's about a lot more than an intellectual puzzle that you're figuring out. It's more like lending people your soul to be really good as a psychologist so that they love and trust you enough to change their life. It's not about pointing out what they need to change, but getting them to feel comfortable leaving their comfort zone. And I just wasn't there. I, I mean, I thankfully I never lost anybody. And out of hundreds of couples I saw, only one of them ever got divorced. But my goodness, I, I just really wasn't there. And that bothered me. I went about it in what I now believe was the wrong way. What about trying to fix this in the wrong way? Because I come from a family of depth psychologists, I figured there must be a hole in my heart, metaphorical hole in my heart. And if I could figure out how to fill the hole in my heart, I wouldn't keep trying to fill the hole in my stomach. So I had this attitude that I would love myself then or nurture my inner wounded child or something like that. But that's not really what solved the problem in, in the long run. I, you know, I went to the best psychologists and psychiatrists, and you can imagine from the family I was in, in New York, that I knew them. And I took medication. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. And I, I had a very soulful, spiritual journey. Like I learned a lot about myself. I don't regret taking it. With every step I would take forward, I would take two steps back and I'd get a little thinner and a lot fatter, a little thinner and a lot fatter. And finally, there were three things that convinced me that I had the wrong paradigm, that I had to do things completely the opposite of the way that I thought and be more like an alpha wolf of my own mind, as opposed to trying to love my inner wounded child back to health. The first was that because I didn't have children and I didn't commute, my, my ex-wife traveled for business all the time, so I had a lot of time in my hands. I developed a second career as a consultant for big corporations. A lot of people, a lot of companies in the big food industry, some in the big pharma industry. And I saw what they were doing progressively more of was engineering these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and excitotoxins and salt. And it was all designed to hit the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And I said, that has nothing to do with whether I'm in a bad marriage, which I was, or whether you know my mama didn't love me enough or I had a hole in my heart. This was an external force with probably billions of dollars behind it, targeting these evolutionary buttons with pleasure we were not prepared to handle, right? So this is something totally different than psychology. Then I read a little more about the neurology of the brain. You can only have neurology of the brain. <laughs> I cracked myself up. The, the, the um, neurology of the foot is a very different book. It's... <laughs> right. I read a little more about neurology. And I discovered that binge eating seems to stem, or overeating seems to stem from the 
activation and misdirection of a survival response. And those survival responses, uh, fight or flee, feast or famine, they tend to be in the primitive brain, the first part of the brain that evolved the lizard brain. And what's interesting about the lizard brain is that when it evaluates something in the environment, when I see something in the environment, it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? It's like a bad college drinking game, eat, mate, or kill. (laughs) There's no love there. There's no love there, right? It's the, so if this is the reptilian brain, the lizard brain, um, the mammalian brain kind of layered on on top of that, and people who don't believe in evolution, you can still say God put it there. But however it got there, it's layered on top of that. And it says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on the people that you love, on your tribe and your family? Then on top of that, there's the neocortex, which says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on the type of person you're trying to become in the world? What impact is that going to be have on your character, on your contribution to society, on your long-term plans, which include, for example, diet and health and fitness? The neocortex has the capability of inhibiting action to make those decisions, but if the survival drive is too strong or really perceives there to be an emergency, it says, just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt, right? It just overtakes your best thinking. And this is why everybody has this experience of reversing their intent on a Monday afternoon when they read a diet book over the weekend and swore they were going to follow it 100%. But then you're standing in Starbucks and there's a chocolate bar in front of you that's calling your name. So I said, okay, this is a very strong external force. Then there's the advertising industry, which is phenomenal at hitting those evolutionary buttons also to convince you that this is where the good stuff is. And this is why everybody is looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or container. You, it's, it's basically a bunch of fat cats in white suits with mustaches that are laughing all the way to the bank every time we, we go to the wrong thing. I'm being a little sexist there, but you know what I mean? <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> and, and I remember working with a vice president of marketing at a major food bar manufacturer, and he was leaving the company. And we'd become kind of good friends by then. And, and he said, um, I got to tell you where I'm going. And, and he was hanging his head in shame. And he said, we figured out that the most profitable thing to do was to take the vitamins out of the bar and put the money in the packaging instead. Mm-hmm. I said, wait a minute. So you made the packaging diverse and multicolored and vibrant to fool the brain into thinking that this is where you get a diversity of micronutrients. You've heard eat the rainbow. Mm-hmm. There's, oh, yeah. a, there's a reason we look for a diversity of colors. It's because there's a diversity of nutrients available. And he said, yeah, we put the money into that. And that seemed kind of predatory to me. But then I looked around the industry and there were all kinds of things like that that were going on. And I said, that's another external force that has nothing to do with my internal depth psychology. And I came across an alternative addiction treatment leader uh, named Jack Trimpey, and he wrote a book called Rational Recovery. And he was actually talking very aggressively about needing to separate your, this is not how we put it, but your constructive thoughts in the neocortex from the destructive thoughts in in the lizard brain. And he worked with black and white addictions, alcohol, drugs, things you could quit entirely as opposed to food where you've got to take the line out of the cage and walk it around the block a couple of times a right. day, right? And he was saying that it was more like an assertion of your superiority. And he pointed out that 
it's not without parallel. We have other biological organs which we have to dominate. For example, if I really had to pee right now, I would tell my bladder that I'm the boss. I'm going to finish this interview with Jeremy and Zach and we'll take care of it later. It's like I'm asserting myself as an alpha wolf. I'm taking care of the pack, but I'm in charge. I decide how that impulse is going to be expressed. If there was a really attractive woman on the street and my testicles wanted me to you know, run up and kiss her, I would not do that. First of all, because I'm shy, but secondly, because there are certain expectations in society of how we approach women. And um, those pesky I'm, laws. I'm, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I'm more likely to go hide in the corner. Yeah, me too. Um, yep. but, but you know what I mean? It's, it's not without parallel. This is just a very strong biological urge. And I said, well, why can't I control this in this way? So when people hear my credentials, they think I'm going to have some like crazy scientific erudite theory about how this all works. But how I actually got better is a little embarrassing. I said, okay, this is by the time I'm like 40, 41, 42, and I've been struggling with overeating for oh, 25 years. And my triglycerides had gone to the point the doctor said I was going to die when I hit 40. And I had all kinds of medical problems. But I said, what do I have to lose? Let me try it. So I decided that I was going to call my reptilian brain my inner pig. I was not going to teach this. This was just an experiment I did for myself. I'm going to call my reptilian brain my inner pig. And I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to draw a very clear line in the sand so that I recognize when the pig is squealing for pig slop. So the first thing I did is I said, I'm never going to eat chocolate on a weekday again. My binges always started with chocolate. Then they progressed to pizza and Pop-Tarts and everything else. But it was always starting with, oh, just a little piece of chocolate. Said, I'm, I'm never going to have chocolate on a weekday again. And if I was at that Starbucks and there was a chocolate bar on the counter as I was about to buy my coffee, and I heard a little voice in my head that said, you know what, Glenn, you worked out hard enough today. You're not going to gain any weight. And it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow. Go ahead, have that, you know, have that chocolate. I'd say, wait a minute, that's not me chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. <laughs> and I know it's, it's like ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But what would happen is it would wake me up at the moment of impulse. And I get those few extra microseconds to make the right choice if I, if I wanted to. I didn't always want to. That required some more work to kind of develop my motivation. But, but I found that what what was miraculous, so I, I didn't totally recover immediately once I realized that I had a pig inside me. Uh, and you don't have to call it a pig. You can call it a food monster or mm. I, this is just what I did. I, I didn't totally recover right away. What happened right away was all the confusion melted away. I, I no longer felt powerless and confused. You know, when I was in the 12-step programs, they were telling me I had a chronic progressive mysterious disease that was doing push-ups in the closet and you know that there was no defense there was no human defense against this impulse and I was going to have to turn over my life and my will to et cetera et cetera et cetera and that I was powerless that I had to admit that I was powerless and I said wait a minute I'm not powerless I don't have a disease what I have is a healthy appetite that's been corrupted by industry and what I need to do is take charge what I really need to do is take charge and so I started experimenting with different rules. I found that for everything you took away, you had to add something. So I have to say, I will always start my day with a healthy green smoothie if I was taking away the chocolate. 
right? I found that often the cravings were driven by some authentic biological need. Like um, if I was craving something really salty and I got myself to have a lot of greens, like you know, a half a pound of greens in a blender or something, that the salt cravings would go away. And I talked to different nutritionists and, nutritionists and everything. And this is not my expertise, it's just what I did. That part, I'm a psychologist, not a medical doctor or a dietitian. But slowly but surely, I put it together. I, I experimented with different roles, and over the course of six months or a year, I was really in control. My weight came down over a couple of years, and um, you know, my medical conditions resolved. And then, as I was getting divorced, I was actually doing something totally different. I, I wasn't working with eating disordered clients. I was doing something totally different. But I was going to have to close down all my businesses. And I, as, as, as a byproduct of the business connections that I had, I wound up as a minor partner in a publishing company. And I was talking to the CEO when he said, you know, we really need to publish a book of our own so that we can prove how well we market and attract better authors. And I said, well, this would be a good time for me to write a book, you know, because I'm kind of navigating the divorce. So, so I take my journal that I kept for eight years and I turn it into a book and I send it to him over a couple of months. He calls me back two weeks later. He says, Glenn, donuts are pig slop. I don't eat donuts. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And he proceeds to lose 100 pounds over the course of the next 18 months or so. And so we published it. And before I know it, I mean, it, that wasn't a miracle either. We did all the right things. And I was in marketing for a long time, so I knew how to get the word out. But before we know it, we got a million readers and now I run around as a person telling um, telling everyone they might have a pig inside them, and it might be a good thing to to work that out. So, um, and people don't quite recognize my name, but in a bookstore, there's usually someone—not usually, half the time—someone who comes up to me and kind of points at me and goes, "Pig guy, pig guy." <laughs> <laughs> that must make you feel uh, wonderful. Oh, especially yeah. if I'm on a first date. That's that's. Oh amazing. yeah, that's good yeah. stuff. Yeah. I want to ask you about the pig because uh, part of part of that, and and maybe I'm uh, misunderstanding the the concept, but a lot of the folks that we've talked to about body image and about weight loss, uh, so many of them point to the idea that in order to be successful in any uh, journey like this, weight loss, whatever, it has to come from a place of self love, not self hate. So you shouldn't go into it. Oh, I'm I'm so mad at myself for letting this get out of hand. I shouldn't have eat that ate so badly for the last twenty years, whatever. And so they go into it with this, with this really negative thing. And so it was interesting to me to hear your perspective where you, you name sort of this, this inner demon, uh, a pig, like you put sort of a negative connotation on it and that works for you. And that works for the people that you, that you uh, coach with this. So how, how do the two mesh? Does it work yeah. that way for some people and not for others? Or am I just completely misunderstanding the, the concept? Oh. Well, first of all, I think you can tell I'm a compassionate person, just the way that I talk and relate to people. And I will tell you, if you listen to some of the recorded sessions, I'll tell you users where to get them for free later on. You'll see that this is actually a process that builds people's self-esteem, not destroys it. When an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership in the pack, it doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug, right? Like it, it, it growls and it snarls and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you. It asserts its superiority. I don't know. That might be a good um, Disney movie. We, we might want to pitch that. I, I'm in. <laughs> I, I'm totally in. I, I'm, I want to play myself. Um, the key is an understanding 
that the pig really isn't you. It's this thing. It's this this bodily organ. And so taking control of this bodily impulse is really no different than taking control of your bladder. And when people take control, their self-esteem goes up. When, when a child is finally able to use the potty and doesn't go in a diaper anymore, their world expands, their capacity expands. Mommy and daddy say, oh, what a good boy or what a good girl. You're such a big boy, such a big girl. And they beam with pride and their whole life is different. It's kind of the same way with this. And what I find is necessary, the, the reason that loving yourself well doesn't work, even though there is an intimate relationship between emotional conflict and overeating, and we can talk about that in detail if you want to after, because it's kind of important. Even though there is that relationship, the problem is that because this is a survival drive, and because it's designed to take care of us in emergencies and it perceives, it's made a biological error. The, the feast and famine response has made a biological error and says, we really need this for our survival. We really, uh, but because of that, we need something very aggressive to separate our, to recognize it immediately, because most people don't recognize immediately when it's happening, and then to separate our constructive thoughts from our destructive thoughts. Once you're awake and once you've intervened with the behavior, um, then I fully support the endeavor to figure out why this all happened in the first place and you know what's hurting him. My, my mom, when I was one year old, she, her, her husband was being threatened with going to Vietnam. He was a captain in the army. My sister was on the way. She was terrified that she was going to be an army widow with two little kids. Her father had just gotten out of prison and he was guilty and she didn't know it and she was devastated. So when I came running to her for love or healthy food, she was sitting and staring at the wall, depressed and anxious all the time. And so she kept a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in a refrigerator on the floor. And she said, go get your Bosco gland. And I go crawling over to the refrigerator and suck on the bottle and go into a chocolate sugar coma. That's where it all came from, right? Mm -hmm. And, and if, if this was a movie, once I figured that out, mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry. And you know, then I would never have trouble with chocolate again. Um, I had a good conversation with mom about this. I learned a lot about her. I learned a lot about myself. I stopped hating myself so much. But when I learned that, I wound up overeating chocolate more. Mm -hmm. And the reason I ate chocolate more was because it was like there was a, um, th there was this little voice inside me that said, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Our mama didn't love us enough and she left a great big chocolate sized hole in our heart. And until we can get out of this marriage and find the love of our life, we're gonna have to go binge on chocolate. Let's go do it right now. Yippee, get me some, right? It became a voice of justification. Right. At that point, I, I flipped the way that I thought about emotions and overeating. I said, emotions are kind of like a fire, right? And you could have a roaring fire in a well-contained fireplace in the living room. And that's an asset, not a liability. It's only if the fireplace is malfunctioning, if the ashes can get out and burn down the house that you're in trouble. So I said, maybe the problem is that people don't have a well enough contained fireplace. Maybe I don't have a well enough contained fireplace. Maybe I have all these little crazy justifications like you can, you know, you can just as well start tomorrow. It's no big deal. Um, you worked out hard enough. And maybe that's what I need to work on. Maybe I have to disempower this grease chute that lets the ashes out of the fireplace. I mean, I found that to be true. I also found 
once you do that, it becomes safer to look at the fire. And so there's all kinds of emotional growth that proceeds from there. Mm -hmm. But I believe that we have it back asswards. Back ass. What, am I, I going to get that works? Deep? That works. Okay, no, no, it. It's, yeah. it's I where I, I like. I think we have it back back asswards um, <laughs> to to say that you have to solve the emotional problems first, and you have to love your inner wounded child. Um, you got to take control, man. You, you you can't. This will go on forever if you're trying to work it out in therapy. Work it work out all this stuff in therapy anyway. But this is going to go on forever. Mm. And I could I could go on forever about the relationship between emotions over it if you want to know more about it. Personally, I think I struggle with that. I think uh, Jeremy and I talked one day, and I found myself I was having a very emotional day, very stressful. I found myself with potato chips in my hand at like ten o'clock in the morning, which uh, I usually wait till like seven p.m. for for those, so I can dis disturb my sleep later on. Mm -hmm. And I love, I, I do love the analogy of the fireplace that that's, that's really, it's got my brain thinking of like, you know, okay, what, what are the things that spit coals out and, and get the rest of the house burning down and I'm right with you, right? Like I worked out today so I can do this or, you know, it was a stressful day. I deserve it. Or chocolate grows on a cocoa bean, which is in a plant and therefore it's a vegetable. Mm -hmm, exactly. 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 I love it. Yeah. Once somebody starts thinking like that and kind of says, oh, okay, I, I, I see that thought was a coal coming out of the fireplace. Is it enough to recognize that? Or what's the next step? Some, some, like, how some, do you Sometimes, sometimes. Yeah. So the process we take people through is you start with one simple rule. One simple rule. Most people live by the old nursery rhyme when it comes to food, which is, when she was good, she was very, very good. When she was bad, she was horrid. Mm -hmm. So most overeaters are also very good dieters. And what happens is they actually keep themselves on this feast and famine roller coaster. So they're not just addicted to overeating, they're addicted to restricting also. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's trouble, the reason we believe that stimulates the binge eating response is that if we evolved where periodically there were environments where food was scarce, calories and nutrition were scarce. Um, and then all of a sudden you come upon calories and nutrition, it would make sense from an evolutionary perspective that our brain would tell us to hoard it. And this is, this is the only reason I can think of, the only explanation for why people overeat when they get too full. Most people said they have to be careful about getting too full because it's a signal to them that all of a sudden a flip switches in their head and they feel like they have to eat more. Mm -hmm. So what you need to recognize is you need a way to wake up and disempower the survival drive. So what we tell people is to come up with one simple, very clear rule so that you know there's a potential for the coals coming out of the fireplace when it happens. So if I say I will never have, I'll never have chocolate through in the week, I'll only have a pretzel at a major league baseball game, then the moment I have a thought that says, hey, it's, you know, we're, I know we're at home, but the pretzels are on the shelf and we should get them. Uh, we know that that is potentially the lizard brain. And what you need to do once you recognize that it might be there is take active steps to disempower that emergency response system inside of you. So that emergency response system is driven by one of our two nervous systems, the sympathetic nervous system, uh, which gets you all revved up and prepared for action. And one of, one of the ways that you can disempower it is by breathing out for longer than you breathe in. In the wild, if we were being chased by a hungry bear, we wouldn't have time 
to breathe out for twice as long as we're breathing in, right? We, we would have to take up as much oxygen as we could. We have to be breathing in more than we're breathing out. So we have a procedure we call the 7-11 breath. I got that from Laurie Hammond, where you breathe in for a count of seven and you breathe out for a count of 11. I'm not going to do it right now because it takes quite some time. I want to just describe it. You, you take a couple of those breaths and like, okay, now your body is starting to move into the parasympathetic nervous system that says it's okay to rest and digest and think about things. So now there's not really an emergency. Then what you want to do is write down the thought, like carry, carry around a pen and paper or a, you know, a smartphone and write down what your pig is saying. It'll be just as easy to start tomorrow. You might as well go get some and binge right now. Yippee, 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 right? Um, then take another few breaths because you will have re-excited the sympathetic nervous system with the pig's thoughts. So take another few breaths and get yourself back up in your right brain. Writing is more of an upper brain activity than a lower brain activity. So writing also moves you into the neocortex. So we're going through a series of activities to really get into our right mind. Then you want to say, what specifically is wrong with what the pig is saying? How is it lying to me? The pig usually wins with a half truth and a bigger lie. So if it says, I've worked out hard enough, I'm not going to gain any weight if I have one chocolate bar or a half a chocolate bar, um, and it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow. Part of that's true. Probably if I only had a half a chocolate bar, I would not gain any weight. The odds of me having a half a chocolate bar are... <laughs> you know, kind of like the odds of Buddy Hackett winning a GQ competition. <laughs> um, it's, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. So it's not, it's not just going to be a half a chocolate bar. The second lie the pig was telling me is that it's just as easy to start tomorrow. Well, we know from neurology that if two things fire together, they will wire together. So if I have a craving for chocolate and I have the thought that says, it's just as easy to start tomorrow. And then I reward that with chocolate. Both of the things are more likely to happen tomorrow and they'll be stronger. The craving mm -hmm. will be stronger and the thought will be stronger. So basically the only time you can eat healthy is the present moment. You always have to use the present moment to be eat healthy. The only time you can eat healthy is right now. If you're in a hole, you have to stop digging. So what I've done is very specifically examine the logic the pig is using to make that grease shoot and I disempowered it. It's like I've thrown, you know, sawdust and sandpaper on it. You can still go down it if you want to, but your butt's going to get scratched up. Um, then you take another breath out. And this is like a little more advanced part we teach people later on. But if you go through an exercise, you would do this beforehand. You go through an exercise where you say, well, what would it mean to me to follow this rule for a year? I know my pig says it's impossible. It's never going to happen. But what if it did? What would be different in my life? Um, would I feel calmer? Would I be 20 pounds thinner? Would I have more energy to play with my kids? Would I be, you know, able to be intimate with my spouse again? What, what would it mean to me? And why do I want that? And that's the kind of person you're trying to become with food. Mm -hmm. And so once you know what that is, after you've disempowered the logic of this grease shoot, then you ask yourself, why would it make me a happier or better person to avoid the chocolate right now? To, to comply with my rule right now, why would it make me a happier, better person? And that starts to link that positive future into the moment to, to pull you forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you, you kind of keep a record of these 
of these, we call them refutations, the pig's logical fallacies and the right answer to it, the correction to it. And you finally ask yourself, do I have an authentic biological need? Maybe I need energy right now. Maybe I really do need something to eat. Maybe I need a smoothie. Maybe I need a salad. Maybe I need an apple. Biologically, what do I actually need? I know I, know I don't really need the chocolate bar. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's a nutritional need for me to eat the chocolate bar right now, but what do I need? Yeah. That's what we do. So uh, I'm, I'm imagining people listening to this who have tried every diet, failed every diet, tried every exercise program, given up after three days because it's hard. And as it turns out, going to the gym sucks. So what do you tell that person who has tried over and over for two, three decades to Couple lose weight? Yeah. Couple of things. First of all, your pig says that the sheer number of attempts you've made in the past is predictive of failure in the future. But that's not really true. Um, When you look at people who finally lost weight and kept it off for five years or more versus people that are continuing to yo-yo, one of the major distinctions between them is that the people who successfully get it off for good have more attempts behind them. So significantly more. So it appears that the path to success runs through failure. So the more failures you've had in the past, the more likely you are to succeed in the next attempt, right? Not, and the pig says just the opposite. Mm-hmm. It says you, you've always failed, so you always will, mm-hmm. which is cruel. Can, can you imagine talking to a kid like that who's trying to learn how to walk? Right. Just stay down already. Come <laughs> on. Crawling's not so bad, right? <laughs> just, um, the other thing I'll tell you is that there's a lot of cultural mythology about the way to go about this. Most people think they're supposed to eat well 90% of the time and indulge themselves 10% of the time. And while that's a good idea in theory, it's more like a North Star to point to. The problem is you don't know which is the 10% and which is the 90%. And the problem with that is that decisions wear down your willpower. We, we only have the ability to make so many good decisions every day. You look at the research on willpower. It's a little bit of controversy, but mostly they say that willpower is a fatigable muscle. It's not like this person has willpower or this person doesn't. We all get up with a certain amount of willpower and throughout the day, decision-making wears it down. Not just decisions about food, but decisions about um, math. There, there are people have trouble resisting marshmallows if we make them do math problems first. Um, decisions about email. Do I put it in spam? Do I defer it for later? Do I delegate this? Do mm-hmm. I send this here? Do I reply? Every little bit of decision-making is wearing down your willpower. You can restore it during the day a little bit by taking some decision-free time. You can you know, walk out and get some fresh air. You can go into the bathroom without your phone. Five minutes twice a day seems to make a difference for, for our clients. But if you're living with the idea that I'm going to eat well most of the time and indulge once in a while, but you don't know specifically when that once in a while is going to be, then every time you're in front of a chocolate bar, you have to make another decision. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I said, let's say I want to not have chocolate 90% of the time, let's say I, I would say I am only ever going to eat chocolate on the last three days of the calendar month and only two ounces per calendar day. Well, then my chocolate decisions have been made all month long, I don't need willpower the rest of the month. I just, the rest of the month, I'm just the kind of person that doesn't eat chocolate. Mm. So we tell them those things. We tell them that you haven't had this understanding. You've probably been trying to love yourself then 
you didn't understand the level of aggression and assertiveness that was necessary to wake up at the moment of impulse. We tell them they probably were trying diets that were too hot, too hard when they were dieting. So they were over restricting when they were dieting. And then of course they would binge when they, when they broke the seal. So you kind of combine all those concepts and it gives people hope again. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. I'd love for you to, you know, just spend a minute, tell people where they can find you, where they can find the book and then any other last thing that you want our listeners to hear. So I've got a couple of things for you. If you go to neverbingeagain.com and then click the big red button. When you sign up for that reader's bonus list, you'll get a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. Totally free. Uh, We do have Audible. We do have paperback, but there's a charge for that. Um, I will also give you a set of recorded full-length coaching sessions because I want you to hear that I'm not just a weird doctor and, you know, Zach and Jeremy's show who's got a pig (laughs) inside of him. This is actually a very well thought through systematic process that takes people from feeling hopeless and powerless and confused about food to having a clear plan that they feel hopeful and excited about in just one session. And then finally, I've got a set of food plan starter templates. Uh, The program is diagnostic. You choose any philosophy that you, that, you know, reasonably can flood your body with nutrition. Um, So we have starter templates for um, keto, for, you know, macrobiotic, for point counters, for calorie counters, for high carb and low carb and whatever new diet your sister's cousin's parakeet recommends. This week. <laughs> <laughs> so I never follow her on Twitter. She's got all kinds of information. <laughs> Neverbidgeagain.com. Click the big red button. Uh, all amazing stuff. I have so many more questions. I'd love to have you back to talk about them. Sure. Thank you so much for your time. This is uh, fascinating sure. and uh, really great work. Thank you. Thanks, guys. It was fun. That was Glenn Livingston, psychologist and author of the book, Never Binge Again. You can find all the links he referenced in the show notes for this episode at thefitmass.com. Some of it's upbringing, some of it's trauma, but I really like how he suggests, and you know, we say all the time on the show, that sometimes you just have to decide that you want something different and commit to it. Certainly when it comes to habits, I mean, there can be medical things that need to be addressed, you know, by a doctor and all that. But when there are things just like habits, like binge eating, like stuffing your face with a pizza on a Friday night because you had a rough day, those are decisions you make. Those are things that you go into it going, I'm actively doing this and I've talked myself into it because I worked hard. I went to the gym, I whatever. But if that's getting in the way of what you say you want or what you believe you want for, for your life, that's when what he talks about can really come in handy and, and really changing the conversation with yourself and making a decision to take action toward a different outcome. Yep. And to be clear, I'm not going to have a pizza because I had a bad day. I had a bad week. <laughs> does that, does it, does, sounds like the pig talking. Change, sounds like the pig talking. changes the equation a little bit, doesn't it? It's Jeremy and the pig now. It's not Jeremy and Zach. It's completely but, changed. It's but I worked show. out six times this week. All right, fine. If you're, uh, now, now I'm giving in because I'm tired of arguing would with the it, pig. I've been arguing with my own Would it day. help if I got a white broccoli pizza instead of a regular pizza? It's got vegetables <laughs> on it. <laughs> Whatever negotiations you need to make to feel good about it, you know, go for it. Uh, one important thing that I think was really revealing that we don't hear enough of is how the, the food industry really is geared for you to fail. And he's had firsthand knowledge of the tactics and the strategies that these companies are using 
to make you not only eat complete garbage, but to crave it and to keep coming back for more of it. So these habits are hard enough just from a willpower and, and, you know, trauma and, and all the stuff that we deal with. But then when the machine is just forcing it down your throat with its advertising tactics and, and the way they alter the food and the way they alter the packaging, it's just, it can be such a, a, a difficult fight to fight and certainly one to win. So it's not completely your fault, but like he, you know, he describes developing that alpha wolf. You just got to work every day to make it a little bit stronger. Yeah. And, and, just remember, you know, compassion and self-love in this, right? I mean, I am joking about the pizza for myself. I'm oh, yeah. not. I'm totally oh, yeah. going to eat it, but <laughs> I'm totally going to eat it. And I'm going to give in for a little bit because I've had a lot of good habits throughout the week. And this is my, this is my routine. Like on the weekend, I have a cheat meal and I'm okay with that. That yep. might not work for everyone, but just remember to have compassion and self-love because you will fall off the wagon. You will eat the thing you didn't want to eat. You'll have a bad day. But just remember that one moment doesn't define the whole journey. And, and be really compassionate with yourself. And we say all the time, too, when, when some of this stuff is just too much to take on alone, it might be worth pursuing a coach or somebody who can work right alongside you and support you through this struggle, because this is a struggle for so many of us. So you're not in this alone, and you certainly don't have to stay that way. There are people that can help. And if you're interested in actually seeing the pizza that I'm going to eat tonight, I will post it in the FitMess community Facebook group where you can go and join other FitMess listeners and connect with us for monthly challenges and accountability to help you reach your goals and a supportive community. And part of that supportive community is helping with that self-compassion. And when you do eat the pizza, it's okay. You didn't fail. You had one weak moment. That's right. You can find the link to that Facebook group on our website, thefitmess.com, where we will be back next week with a brand new episode. Thanks for listening. See you, everyone. We know this podcast is amazing and doesn't seem to lack anything, but we need a legal disclaimer. Prior to implementing anything discussed in this podcast, it is your responsibility to conduct your own research and consult your physician. You should assume that Jeremy and Zach don't know what they're talking about, and they're not liable for any physical or emotional issues that occur directly or indirectly from listening to this podcast.